If you want to write stories your readers will love, there are three things you need to do. Understand storytelling principles, see how other writers have applied those principles, and then use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd Podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory. We'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. I'm Melanie Hill, writer, poet and editor, and I have a passion for spy stories, fairy tales and master detective novels. And I'm Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for and about women. On today's episode, Valerie pitched Wayne's World so that we can study plot structure. This 1992 film was directed by Penelope Sephiris from a screenplay by Mike Myers, Bonnie Turner and Terry Turner, based on a Mike Myers sketch from Saturday Night Live. Of course, there will be spoilers because we can't talk about the movie without talking about the movie. And we'd really love it if you could leave our show a rating and review. For Apple Podcast listeners, you can do it right from your phone. Simply go to the show's landing page and scroll to the bottom. It's that simple. All right, Valerie. (laughs) Wayne's World, what have you got for the genre? All righty. Well, Wayne's World is an anti-plot film. So by nature of being anti-plot, it defies genre. That's part of the deal with anti-plot. It kind of starts as a status story for Wayne, and then there's a love story for Wayne and Cassandra, and it, you know, kind of ends as a status story for Cassandra. Uh, But even defining the genre this loosely still feels like I'm trying to put a square peg in a round hole. So if we think about genre as meaning the kind of story we're dealing with, then the most accurate thing I can say is that Wayne's World is sketch comedy that goes on for 90 minutes. Uh, In terms of some sort of internal genre, the closest thing I got is worldview education, but, you know, that's pretty loose. (laughs) Now, I do want to say something, though. The reason there is some sort of a genre here is that even in an anti-plot film or novel, there's still a change that happens from the beginning to the end. So there is a bit of a change in Wayne at the end, because, well, sort of, kind of. I mean, because Wayne says to camera, isn't it great? We're all better people now. (laughs) I love this movie. And this is part of the shtick with anti-plot is that they take everything that has anything to do with story as we know it, and they turn it upside down, (laughs) including this idea of genre. But there does have to be a change because if there wasn't a change, if nothing changed, it's not an anti-plot narrative. It's non-plot So that's a really important difference. Something's got to change. Even if we say the only change is that in the beginning of the film, Wayne wasn't in a relationship, and at the end of the film, he is in a relationship. Something has changed. What do you think of that, Melanie? (laughs) Well, so so this week I went, you know what? It's anti-plot. There probably isn't a genre, so I didn't even make a guess. And, uh, It's interesting what you say about change because one of the notes that I've got in my part of the script is that I didn't think the characters had changed at all, even though they say, isn't it great? (laughs) 
But I did, yes, there were some things that were different, but in terms of it, an, an arc, I suppose, there's there wasn't much of an arc. So, yes, I can see what you're saying there. There is something that has to be different and a change, even if it is just as simple as, you know, uh, Wayne's with Cassandra, but again, it's not much else that's different. <laughs> with an anti-plot story, we have to take everything that we think we know and toss it out. <laughs> so if we're looking for change, the way that we have been studying stories forever, the change isn't going to be like that. Nothing is going to be the way we are used to seeing it. That's kind yeah. of the whole point. Well, it's it's interesting too, isn't it? So that, you know, if we think about um, Wayne and Garth as the main characters, they kind of end up back where they started, even though they may be in relationships. But the supporting cast and some of the key people have had changes. So if you think about um, Rob Lowe's character, he's obviously had a big change, <laughs> you know, in his fortunes and what happened to him. So there are things that happened and people did change or their circumstances changed, but with Wayne and Garth it was probably minimal and I think that's okay. Right, you know, I think that there is there are things that changed but we normally would expect it to be with our protagonists, but this time it's sort of more in some of the support cast as opposed to the the two main characters in the story. I think that's that's me riffing. <laughs> yeah, no, I would agree. I would agree. <laughs> yes. All right. So how to? I'm really. I don't understand the theory much on this anti plot. So I'm ready to help. <laughs> Have you help me understand it? <laughs> Well, God, if I'll I try. <laughs> I will do my best. I have to admit right out of the gate that I was nervous this week about studying Wayne's World because I remember seeing it in the theater when it was first released. And I remember howling with laughter. And uh, to say I felt trepidation is an understatement because I feared it wouldn't be funny anymore <laughs> or that I wouldn't en enjoy it as much as I did when I was 21. But I'm happy to say that I did still laugh. Yeah, maybe not quite as much, but I still found parts of it hysterically funny. And it, and all week I've been replaying bits of it in my head and uh, <laughs> and enjoying it and smiling. So thank you, Mike Myers. I'm also very glad that I'm studying it as an example of anti-plot because if I'd come at this analysis with the assumption that it was an arc plot story, because the vast majority of stories, whether they're films or novels, that we consume are arc plot, I would have been disappointed. I wouldn't have understood what was happening here. And if I didn't know that there are different forms of plot structure, I'd think that Wayne's world simply doesn't work. This is what, and, and if you're going to look at it through the lens of an arc plot story, then no, it doesn't work. But it's not arc plot, it's anti plot. This is why having an awareness of plot form is so important. We don't need to be an expert in every form. I mean, unless being an expert in story theory is the goal. We just need to know that there are different forms and we need to understand how the form that we're writing in works. We also need to know that our audience, whether that's an agent or a book buyer, will be expecting arc plot. So, 
if we're going to choose another form, we've got to alert them to it somehow. We've got to pitch the story properly. If we're writing a mini plot story, for example, something that's very literary and much less commercial with a passive protagonist, we got to send it to agents who are looking for that kind of a story. And we've got to give comp titles that are also mini plot stories that also have passive protagonists. I mean, just understanding this one concept could be the difference between a rejection and a request for a full or a partial manuscript. Okay, what exactly is anti-plot? Well, <laughs> simply put, it's kind of the opposite of arc plot. <laughs> it takes all of the aspects of arc plot, all the things that make up the kinds of stories we're used to, and it just turns them on their ear. I'm going to be quoting from Robert McKee a lot this week. So McKee says that anti-plot film is, quote, the cinema counterpart to the anti-novel or nouveau roman and theater of the absurd. So, okay, we're, we're novelists, so what is an anti-novel? Here's the Merriam-Webster definition. An anti-novel is a work of fiction that lacks most or all of the traditional features of the novel. So, for example, it's the work of Virginia Woolf or James Joyce or Samuel Beckett. McKee says, quote, These are worlds in which not only are events atemporal, coincidental, fragmented, and chaotic, but characters do not operate within a recognizable psychology. Neither sane nor insane, they are either deliberately inconsistent or, or overtly symbolic. Films in this mode are not metaphors for life as lived, but for life as thought about. They reflect not reality, but the solipsism of the filmmaker, and in doing so, stretch the limits of story design toward didactic and ideational structures. Well, now, if that doesn't describe Wayne's world, I don't know what does. <laughs> the characters are neither sane nor insane. <laughs> they are neither deliberately inconsistent or, you know. Anyway, McKee says that the sense of a single perception, no matter how incoherent, holds the work together for audiences willing to venture into its distortions. And that single perception here is Wayne. So he's the constant through the whole story. Antiplot means anti-structure. Again, from McKee, antiplot doesn't reduce the classical form, but it reverses it, contradicting traditional forms to exploit, perhaps ridicule, the very idea of formal principles. And that is definitely happening in Wayne's world for comic relief. So all of the elements that we've been looking at, like in this whole podcast, <laughs> it just tossed them out the window for this week. <laughs> uh, and definitely the, the elements that I've been talking about since the beginning of the season. And by that, I mean, you know, the type of ending that a story has, whether it's open or closed, the nature of the conflict of the story, whether it's internal or external, the number of protagonists a story has, and the nature of the protagonist, whether she's active or passive, the kind of timeline a story has, linear or nonlinear, and the logic of the story, whether there's a cause and effect flow to events, or whether there's simply a series of coincidences. Now, I just want to pick up on that last point a little bit more. The story logic, arc plot uses causality, but according to Robert McKee, anti-plot, quote, 
often substitutes coincidence for causality, putting emphasis on the random collisions of things in the universe that break the chains of causality and lead to fragmentation, meaninglessness, and absurdity. Well, again, that's Wayne's world. I don't know how else to say it. That's Wayne's world. You know, I just want to tap into something that you've said there that, you know, if you didn't come into Wayne's world uh, knowing, well, if I didn't come into it knowing that it was anti, anti-plot, anti-structure, I really would have struggled with this now. But if I had been, if I had seen it when I was, you know, in my 1921 sort of age group, that wouldn't have worried me at all. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's amazing how the passage of time has changed my willingness to accept some things. And there are parts of that story that really resonates with that time and of an age that we were when it first came out compared to what we, what we know now. And it's, it, it makes more sense to me watching it now for the first time in my 50s, um, knowing that it is anti-plot, whereas I just would have accepted it as sort of like some sort of weird kooky film <laughs> that, you know, because I heard so many catchphrases and all those sorts of things that came from that movie. So it, underst- even if we go forward now and go into a movie like this, I will feel more comfortable to go, oh, it's the plot structure that is that is different here. It's 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 you know a continuation of, of like you said the skits. It's just a skit <laughs> series of skits that kind of keep on going. So I think that that description that you've given there of what anti plot is fits perfectly with Wayne's world, and it just gives us an extra reference point to go what's what's different about this <laughs> and. And why is it that I'm having a certain type of reaction to to watching this movie and it comes down to the structure? Here's the thing. Not everyone likes sketch comedy, but if you do like sketch comedy, this is just a feast of it. If you do like this type of comedy, 90 minutes of it is a joy to sit through. Well, even if you don't like a part of it, the next bit is different. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It doesn't because you don't, you're not stuck in that same thing all the time. So you have the tolerance to go, well, that bit didn't land with me, but this next bit might or it did. And I think that's one of the beauties of that form and how they've made that movie is that if you don't like one part of it, you probably like the next part or, you know, something in there will will resonate with you or speak to you or you'll find funny and I, that was one thing that stood out for me this week as well, watching it. Well, I hope you liked it. <laughs> yeah, <I did. laughs> All right. Let's look at Wayne's World and just some of the examples um, of, of how anti-plot is playing out in this film. Now, I started out trying to make a complete list, but the subversion of the arc plot structure is just constant. There's way too much for one podcast episode. Honestly, it could be an entire book. And, oh, you know, I, I did mention that Antiplot is also the works of, say, Virginia Woolf, etc. Sketch comedy is just one form of Antiplot. I think it might be the only type that I am interested in, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> okay. 
So there are multiple examples of characters talking to camera. There's even a moment when Wayne tells Glenn, who's the coffee shop employee, that only Wayne and Garth can talk to camera. And this breaking the fourth wall is part of um, an antiplot. When Wayne sees Cassandra, the Dreamweaver music comes on. And then there's a similar thing that happens with Garth when he sees the dream girl uh, at the coffee shop. We have all those fantasies with all that you know, romantic music that's happening. And then, of course, Dana Carvey doing the foxy dance. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. It's just as funny this time as it was when I was 21. Well done, Dana Carvey. <laughs> I mean, it's a little creepy, but it's also really funny. <laughs> um, there's an odd scene when Benjamin tells Garth that Noah, um, that's the arcade owner, is to have a regular spot on the show. Okay. In this scene, Garth is making a robotic hand and it comes up out of nowhere. Like we have no previous knowledge that he's building a robot or anything like that. We, there is a, we do know early that he's sort of technologically minded and sort of gadgety, but this hand, this robotic hand with this crazy um, homemade cap, like this is just where did this come from? And even Dana Carvey said he didn't understand why that was in the movie. But Lauren Michaels, who's the producer, insisted on it. And so there it is. Are you going to argue with Lauren Michaels about how sketch comedy works? Probably not. There's a whole series of titles on screen. Now, it happens within the Wayne's World public access program. But it also happens within the Wayne's World movie. For example, the gratuitous sex scene or Oscar clip. There's also subtitles in the Cantonese conversation between Wayne and Cassandra. Not only does it translate what they're saying, but it expresses Wayne's inner thoughts. Because there's a point when no one is speaking, but the subtitles are still going. <laughs> there are multiple acknowledgments of randomness. First example, when Ben makes the initial offer to buy the program, Garth calls the audience to meet him under the table where he asks, does this seem weird? I mean, why does this guy have contracts? It happens again after the Alice Cooper concert when Wayne and Garth accidentally exit the building. They meet a security guard who tells them that the limo is owned by music industry executive Frank Sharp. Well, no one was ever talking about music industry anything or Frank Sharp has never come up before. And this guard, who is um, Chris Farley, plays the, the guard, he tells them that uh, Sharp is driving around the country looking for acts. He tells them the whole schedule, how Sharp operates. And after this conversation, Wayne, again to camera, says, you know, for a security guard, he had an awful lot of information, don't you think? <laughs> of course, what they're doing here is subverting the whole idea of a setup. The setups that you and I work so hard to put into our stories, <laughs> they see, they, they acknowledge, and they're just turning it around. And of course, there is a payoff. And this comes when Wayne and Garth are trying to think of a way to win Cassandra back from Ben to Wayne. And it's Garth who remembers Sharp, and Wayne says... Aren't we lucky we were there to get all that information? It seemed extraneous at the time, <laughs> right? Like this is anti-plot stuff. 
And following from that, in that same scene, when they're coming up with a plan for how are they going to get Cassandra's video in front of Sharp, Garth suddenly has all the spy technology and like all the equipment and all the information to enable them to beam a video of Cassandra and her band right into Sharp's limo. Now, we do see this kind of complicated plan suddenly coming together in movies like Mission Impossible, and we don't think anything of it. Here, Wayne's World subverts it by having Wayne say, we can only pray he's watching television in his limo at that exact moment. I mean, I find this funny. (laughs) Uh, There's a whole bit about product placement right? That is definitely the influence of sketch comedy there. If you watch Saturday Night Live, that's just going to come right out of it for you. Um, Now, Melanie, did you guys have Laverne and Shirley, the TV show Laverne and Shirley? Yes. And I used to love it as a, as a little girl. Yes. So that resonated and I could, I recognize that straight away. And even when they said, we're going to Milwaukee, I went, oh, Laverne, in my head, I went, Laverne and Shirley. There you go. And I knew. And so then when that popped up, I was so pleasantly surprised and I knew exactly what that was in the movie and what it was referring to. (laughs) I I loved that show. So they do a whole montage of the opening of the Laverne and Shirley show. Then in the donut shop, there's a red door that uh, Wayne opens to reveal a whole bunch of people being trained like they're in a James Bond movie. It has nothing to do with anything. Wayne even says, oh, I just wanted to open a door to see people training like James Bond. And then they close it and that's it. (laughs) If you thought this was an arc plot story, you would be crying foul now. You'd be tearing your hair out if you even got this far in the movie. But understanding what it is, uh, that was just a great joke. And last but not least, there are three endings to the story. There's the first one is a down ending where Cassandra's career is ruined, Stacy is pregnant, the house burns down, and Cassandra ends up with Ben. And then they do the Scooby-Doo ending, which I howled with laughter at because I'd forgotten the Scooby-Doo ending. Cassandra gets the deal, and then Ben is revealed to be Old Man Withers. I love Scooby-Doo, so that, yes, that made me laugh. And then finally, there's the up ending, which is the happily ever after. Cassandra gets a six- album deal with Sharp and declares her love for Wayne. The dream girl from the coffee shop declares her love for Garth. Noah says that the kids are looking at him in a whole new positive way. Ben learns that looks aren't everything. And Wayne declares again to camera, isn't it great that we're all better people? (laughs) Now, (laughs) to end off, I just want to say a word to anyone who thinks they're writing that writing anti-plot is a get-out-of-jail-free card. Yes, Wayne's World was a commercial success, and it's still funny, what, 30 years later. But most anti-plot narratives are not commercially successful, so you have to be honest with yourself about what your career goals are. There aren't too many stream-of-consciousness books on the market today, and I'm pretty sure there aren't any on the New York Times list. But there's a whole lot of Colleen Hoover books on the New York Times list. Also keep in mind that the people who made this film are masters in the comedic arts. These are people who know exactly what they're doing when it comes to sketch comedy. It's Lorne Michaels, Mike Myers, Dana Carvey. And even they weren't sure this film was going to work. 
All right. That's it for me. Melanie, what's your take on Resonance this week? Well, there are lots of references, as you mentioned, to other movies and music in Wayne's world. And it's an example, I think, a good example of putting a great deal of modern references into a story. And I thought that the structure of the movie allowed the writers to throw in random and obscure lines from other films, from TV songs, from other music, from actors, products, you know, as in the Pepsi catchphrases and other catchphrases from commercials. And, you know, like you mentioned, even the conventions from cartoons such as, you know, the unmasking of the villain Scooby-Doo style. So I thought that the structure actually allowed them to do a lot of things that you wouldn't normally expect. So the structure meant that there wasn't any rhyme or reason for the references and that worked well for a story that is anti-plot. The other movies we've seen this season which use references to a whole range of other stories, movies, songs, characters, you know, people and product placement, would be the Lego Batman movie. But the biggest difference between the two is that most of the resonance in Bat- Lego Batman made sense and contributed to the plot and the themes of family, loneliness, good and evil, and teamwork. Now, this isn't the case for Wayne's World, but it's not meant to be the case, and the randomness is part of the point. Now, there were similarities, I thought, with between Wayne's World and Nashville. So some of the references in Wayne's World were very specific and may not mean much to people outside of the dominant culture. So, for example, the fictional donut shop, Stan Makita's Donuts, is named after a Chicago Blackhawks hockey player. Now, I'm going to assume that this is ice hockey and not field hockey, but this reference is lost on someone like me. And there are also other ice hockey references in this film. The location of where the donut scenes were filmed is in a Tim Hortons, which I believe is a Canadian chain, and Tim Horton was a famous ice hockey player as well. And the police officer at the donut shop was officer, now I might get this wrong, <laughs> please forgive me, is it Kohaski? And this is a reference to an ice hockey referee called Don Kohaski. Okay, I got to jump in here. Yes, Tim Hortons is a coffee shop here. It's everywhere, everywhere. Uh, I'm getting a kick out of you saying ice hockey all the time because it's just hockey for me. (laughs) In the land of ice, it's just hockey. (laughs) And Mike Myers is Canadian and a huge hockey fan. There's tons of hockey references here. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, being Canadian, I enjoyed it. I didn't want to play hockey when I was little, but I wasn't allowed because I'm a girl. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you can't, even if you're not a hockey fan in Canada, you can't help but know about hockey. You just can't help it because it's yeah. sort of in the air. Anyway, please continue. No, well, see, and that's uh, my next point was going to be these references work well if you're part of a community who loves and watches, I'll say, hockey. <laughs> but if you're someone like me, you'll probably find these things out, these references out by accident or with the help of prime 
Amazon Prime Video X-ray function, which was actually very helpful for me this week. <laughs> but there, there are, however, many references to mainstream culture that resonate with those outside of Northern American culture as well. So the music is a prime example. So songs such as Ugly Kid Joe's Everything About You, Dreamweaver, and also music from Romeo and Juliet, which was the fantasy overture and played by the Berlin Symphonic Orchestra. So the styles of music in the movie are broad, and this is great for the audience. We can recognise a large portion of the music on offer. But it's also kind of odd because for a pair who base their show, Wayne's World, around being heavy metal music fans, there's not much heavy metal music. So there is some. So there's, you know, Black Sabbath, uh, you know, they're considered heavy metal and there's bands and other singers like Alice Cooper, Ugly Kid Joe and Rhino Bucket and they are cons- but they are considered hard rock these days, not heavy metal. And, yes, there is a difference. <laughs> there are also some glam rock bands in the mix too, like Cinderella. But does this matter in Wayne's world? No, not really. <laughs> but that's a, And I think that's a good thing. The other interesting use of resonance in this movie is the language used by Wayne and Garth. So straight away they use words like party time, bogus, no way, you can tell I'm not an actor, right, <laughs> and, and excellent, which are phrases used by Bill and Ted in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Now, Bill and Ted came out in 1989 and Wayne's World came out in 1992 and they are part of what's called stoner comedy or the stoner comedy genre. Now, I'm not sure about this myself, <laughs> And But there are also other more important similarities, right? There are two best friends. In both movies, those best friends have a love of music and they have catchphrases. Now, the catchphrases in both movies became synonymous with each movie and they worked their way into popular culture like earworms. Phrases like psycho hose beast, schwing and we're not worthy became very popular and very overused perhaps in mainstream conversation. So like other movies, Wayne's World created its own resonance and both Wayne's World and Bill and Ted spawned sequels and continued the worlds and the characters that people loved. So if you remember back to the first episode of the season, I put forward the idea that readers if they like a particular story, seek out similar stories with the aim of recapturing or reliving the feeling they experienced in the previous novel. So the commercial success of Wayne's World and Bill and Ted's spawned sequels and I think is proof of that concept of resonance. So the popularity of this movie I think can be put down to the resonance within it. And I think the writers were very aware of what they were doing and who their target audience was. The two main characters are very juvenile in their behaviour. So the behaviour that they present was very easy for the target audience to relate to. Wayne and Garth don't really suffer from the consequences of any ill-informed actions. 
they stay sort of where they started with Wayne still living at home and filming the community access TV show in his garage. And both guys get the girls, but it's sort of just because (laughs) they don't really grow. They don't change that much. But that's, I think, what the audience wants. The Wayne's World trio or group of guys are back together no matter which way the the movie ended and which one you choose to believe or, or want to attribute the right ending to. And I think that's part of the fun. So this is not a criticism. It's just part of the fun of the movie. And I think it also links back to that resonance and knowing your target audience and what your audience want. Now, at the risk of alienating some hardcore fans of Wayne's World, I have to say that I didn't really like Garth. I found his mannerisms and the way he spoke kind of creepy. So there was something very off about Garth to me. And this is resonance too, right? So in the same way that we seek out stories that recapture a feeling, we also avoid stories that recreate unwanted feelings or experiences. So by the end of the movie, I couldn't really watch the character of Garth And when I went to watch it the second time, I kind of found myself turning away a bit. But on the other hand, Wayne is different. He is a character that I enjoyed watching and I didn't mind. He is silly and funny, but he wasn't creepy to me. Now, there are many ways to create resonance in a story and Wayne's world, like the Lego Batman movie, does a good job of drawing from many sources to tap into nostalgia. The biggest difference between these two movies, I thought, was theme. So the arch plot structure drives the resonance elements to support the story's theme, while the anti-plot structure means anything can be included, no matter how random it appears. The resonance doesn't need to support the story's theme or premise, because there's no need to. Events, characters, speeches, they don't need to have any meaning. And this is why Wayne's World and its heavy metal fans don't worry if the music they hear is pop music or a show's theme song. But this would matter if the structure was different. The random nature of events also applies to the smaller units of story, including how resonance is used within those units. The move away from cause and effect events to coincidental events gives the writer freedom to be random and use snippets of familiar content that don't have to relate to another one. So an example of this is the scene where Wayne and Garth meet Alice Cooper after his concert. So I thought that this was one of the funniest scenes in the film. You know, Alice is the opposite of his on-stage persona. He is a civilised gentleman who has a cultured conversation with his band about Milwaukee. And it's unexpected because it's Alice Cooper, but it's not surprising because it's Wayne's world. And when Wayne and Garth drop to their knees and chant, we are not worthy, that too is odd. But at this stage of the movie, it's also something we're not surprised by because it's Wayne's world. (laughs) So there is also resonance in the way the movie reflects comedy skit style. 
and we know this because the original, the movie originated from a Saturday Night Live skit. So each scene in Wayne's World is a skit. And again, we know this because of the way the movie is broken up. So here are some signs. Wayne and Garth have terrible wigs, <laughs> terrible wigs. <laughs> Their clothes are, are kind of awful and it's really obvious that they're older men playing younger ones. And I think that this appearance recreates the skit-like appearance of the movie as well. And they are visual signals to us about what's going on. Now, skits aren't always structured like an arc plot either. They are structured around beats and getting laughs. Oddities and unexpected events are common features. Characters are caricatures. Speech is hyper-stylized or over-the-top or understated, as I think Valerie said previously, and the events border on the absurd or the reactions to normal events are, are border on absurd as well. But Wayne's World has drawn on the power of resonance, but in ways that we don't expect. There are some cultural references, but unlike Nashville, this movie draws from a wider field and there's something in there for everyone. But what surprised me this week was how the structure of the story changes the way resonance is used to generate humour, but also broaden the audience. So Valerie, that's my thoughts about how resonance features in Wayne's world. What is your takeaway for this week? Okay, so for the action step, we've looked at four different plot forms so far this season. Arc plot, mini plot, multiplot, and now anti-plot. So your action step this week is to make a firm decision about the plot type of the story that you're writing. Make the decision and stick to it. Well, that wraps it up for this week. Choose your coloured lightsaber and join us next week when we discuss Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For access to writing templates and worksheets and more than 70 hours of training, Subscribe to Valerie's Inner Circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis. If you'd like to find out about books to help you read like a writer, visit me on Facebook and Instagram under Melanie Hill Author or find out more about me at melaniehill.com.au. And remember, story theory doesn't have to be difficult it's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time and have fun. Valerie, if I can leave with just one thought, it's party on. You're such a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> the line is party on, Valerie. <laughs> party on, Melanie. Me to- <laughs> I am a nerd. Do you want me to do <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> I'm gonna take acting lessons. <laughs> do you want me to do it again? <laughs> Alright, let me do it again. I'll do it again. So we can have multiple. Well, or endings. we can leave it. <laughs> and there we go, the multiple endings. Yes! <laughs> Alright, ending two. <laughs> And remember, story.
story theory doesn't have to be difficult. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time and have fun. Party on, Valerie. Party on, Melanie. (laughs) 